I am very excited to join you today, and uh, it's been an awesome series on hope, and Pastor Randall's been unpacking that for us, and uh, now I'm going to talk to you a bit about hope for the future, and uh, I think it's an interesting um, day to think about hope as we get ready to enter into a new year, and I was just thinking about the new year. So we all had hopes for Christmas. You, can, you saw that on the video, and I really enjoyed those videos as we were going through to hear and see the different things that people have been hoping for. Um, I hope they got what they were hoping for. But now we shift gears, don't we? As you enter into a new year, you have hopes and dreams for this new year. And some of you are just excited to start a new year where it would be like a fresh start. Some of you are ready to turn that page and move on to the next one where you can write a different story into this coming year. But some of you are looking back and you're like, you know what? Some great things happened this year. And so your expectation of hope might be a little higher than others. And for some of you, it's a little lower. So today I'm going to talk to you um, about why we can have hope for the future. And I kind of want to equip you for this coming year and, and how to keep your hope in the midst of everything that we go through. And I'm going to do that through sharing a couple stories of people who are in seemingly hopeless situations. And then I want to talk about where we need to place our hope. Because hope has come. Pastor Randall unpacked that for us last week. And that is the key to everything. Hope has come. So today I just kind of, my title is Simple Beginnings. Simple Beginnings. It's interesting how um, a lot of us have big things we want to see happen. But the key to seeing big things happen is small steps. So if you want to get out of debt, there are some steps to get there. You need to have a budget. You need to spend less. You need to maybe make more. Maybe you need to um, have someone help you. Um, There are steps. And so maybe what your one step is, you know, I will only go to Tim Hortons twice a week. Okay, for you maybe, some people at Starbucks, wherever it is. Okay, simple little steps add up. And so I want to talk to you about simple beginnings. I love fresh starts, so I'm the kind of person I like taking on new things. I love the newness of it. I love the opportunity. Um, it's, it hasn't been done before. You're like, it's wide open what could happen. Now, for some people, that's intimidating, but I love that. Um, but this is a new, a new year coming upon us. Um, the 2020, um, and I love that it's, it reminds you what is your focus, right? Um, something about starting over too, even if you're in school, there's that, and if you're, you know, you're not in school anymore, you can still remember back. You would get your new books, you'd have your new courses, you would have some new teachers, maybe you were going to a new school, but it was kind of exciting. And then you'd have these new goals along with it. Well, you know, this semester I'm going to write neater notes. Or I'm going to do all my homework. I remember having those goals. Um, Or maybe, you know, it's something really practical to help you get through this new year. Well, I'm going to exercise more. Whatever it may be, it's interesting that of all the resolutions made for the new year, they say 93% of them will fail. 93%. So I don't say that to say don't make any. Um, It's good to have a goal and have a purpose. But I think a lot of us aim too high. We forget. To get there, it's little steps. 
So here's some of the resolutions for 2020, the top ones right now. I looked at a bunch of different places that were polling and asking people what their goals were. And you can probably re relate to some of these. And now they're not in order of importance, or what one was number one. They were all very close. Um, one goal people have for 2020 is finances, reduce my debt. That's a big goal. Now, um, for some of our youth, it was actually get some money, um, not reduce their debt. Um, eat healthier was another goal. And I can, I can, that resonates with me after the Christmas holidays. Um, be more active. Now, here's, here's a, a new one that's rising up into the top ones. Decrease screen time, social media use. Kind of a, 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 a trend going around now about people wanting to use screen time less. They're realizing the negative effects of it. And there's this new phone that's being marketed. It's, um, I forget the name of it, but it's a simple phone. You can't access social media on it. Okay, basically we're going back to the original cell phones, right? Okay, but they're going back to that now, except, you know, it's probably 10 times the cost of the original one. Um, but it's actually selling at a really high rate because people are like, oh, good, because if I have access to it, I'm going to go to it. But if I get this cool-looking phone that doesn't go to social media, that's going to help me. So it's interesting how things can trend. Um, lose weight, that's another goal. Improve mental well-being. So those are some of the big ones that people have for this year, and maybe you can relate to a couple of those. Uh, a couple of my own goals is I'm, my wife and I have talked about using a budget better. So that's one of our goals. Uh, one of my own is like more consistent quiet times in the morning. And that's a challenge with young kids. That is a challenge. So they um, aren't necessarily quiet in the morning. So my quiet times are not what I would hope they would be. So we all like to start over at times. I think we all love to have the redo button at times. You know, the future holds the hope for something better. That's why I think a lot of us like the chance to start over. Things don't always stay this way. After many disappointments, we often give up. We lose hope. A person can only start over so many times before you begin to wonder, what's the point? What makes you think you're not going to mess it up again? Now, people vary. The number of disappointments necessary before someone gives up hope is different from person to person. So, um, I know this really hit home as I was reading about, more about Thomas Edison, and I'd mentioned him in an earlier sermon, but the thousands of different materials he tried before he found the right one for a light bulb. And during the whole time, not once did he lose hope. In fact, he saw every failure as a step in getting him closer to success. Now, that is an amazing outlook. That is not my outlook in so many situations. I don't go, yes, I messed up again and I'm that closer to getting it right. But that was his outlook. Now, the interesting thing I hadn't noticed before is he worked in a lab with lots of other scientists and inventors. They had all given up. They had wanted nothing to do with his light bulb invention. And he would continually have to encourage them and remind them that we're going to get there, we're going to get there. And they were glad that they did continue on because they did find a solution. But not of all of us think like Thomas Edison. We have different points at which we go, forget it. That's enough. <laughs> so we all mess up, and it's a good thing we get second chances. So I can remember um, when I first met um, my wife, Kelly, we had, uh, we'd met online. Now, 40% of 
marriages, they say roughly, are people who meet online now. So it's kind of a normal thing now. Um, for a lot of you, that's not normal to hear that. But we met online, and then we met up at a Starbucks um, after writing back and forth. And uh, I remember it was really exciting. I was waiting for her. I had a drink. I had my, my book. I was there plenty early just to make sure. And um, I was so nervous that when she got there, I forgot to buy her her drink. <laughs> that is a bad way to start. And I remember she, her saying, she was like, oh, boy, I don't know about him, right off the bat. And that's, a, that's when you want to redo, right? That's when you want to start over. And thankfully, she gave me another chance. And um, the rest is history. We're now married with three kids. But uh, we all mess up. We all do things where we're like, oh, can't believe I just did that. Where's the redo button? I need to press it. And I wanted to actually dive back into, to start the Christmas story a little bit. And I came across this um, perspective on it that I hadn't read before. And I'm going to read it to you because I never thought of it in this way. Um, and it was the perspective from Joseph's eyes. What was Joseph thinking in the midst of everything? We think of it as this amazing moment, the pinnacle of God's plan coming to its completion. God in the flesh on earth. And yet, I don't think that's how Joseph was thinking at that moment. Let me just read to you what maybe Joseph's prayer or perspective was. This isn't the way I planned it, God. Not at all. My child being born in a stable, this isn't the way I thought it would be. A cave with sheep and donkeys, hay and straw. My wife giving birth with only the stars to hear her pain. This isn't at all what I imagined. No, I imagined family. I imagined grandmothers. I imagined neighbors clustered outside the door and friends standing at my side. I imagined the house erupting with the first cry of my infant. Slaps on the back, loud laughter, jubilation. That's how I thought it would be. The midwife would hand me my child and all the people would applaud. Mary would rest and we would celebrate. All of Nazareth, all of Nazareth would celebrate. But now, now look. Nazareth is five days journey away and here we are in a sheep pasture. Who will celebrate with us? The sheep, the shepherds, the stars. This doesn't seem right. What kind of a husband am I? I provide no midwife, no aid to my wife, no bed to rest her. Her pillow is a blanket from my donkey. My house for her is a shed of hay and straw. The smell is bad. The animals are loud. Why, I even smell like a shepherd myself. Did I miss something? Did I, God? When you sent the angel and spoke of the son being born, this isn't what I pictured. I envisioned Jerusalem, the temple, the priests, and the people gathered to watch. A pageant, perhaps, a parade, a banquet, at least. I mean, this is the Messiah. Or if not born in Jerusalem, how about Nazareth? Wouldn't Nazareth have been better? At least there I may have my house and my business. Out here, what do I have? A weary mule, a stack of firewood, and a pot of warm water. This is not the way I wanted it to be. This is not the way I wanted my son. Oh my, I did it again. I did it again, didn't I? Father, I don't mean to do that. It's just, I forget. He's not my son. He's yours. The child is yours. The plan is yours. The idea is yours. 
And forgive me for asking, is this how God enters the world? The coming of the angel I've accepted, the questions people asked about the pregnancy, I can tolerate. The trip to Bethlehem, fine, but why a birth in a stable God? Any minute now, Mary will give birth, not to a child, but to the Messiah, not to an infant, but to God. That's what the angel said. That's what Mary believes. And God, that's what I'm trying to believe. But surely you understand, it seems so, so bizarre. I guess it's foolish of me to question you. Forgive my struggling. Trust doesn't come easy to me, God. But you never said it would be easy, did you? I wonder, did Joseph ever pray such a prayer? Perhaps he did, perhaps he didn't. But you probably have. And I know I have. In different situations you find yourself in. You go, God, how did I end up here? This is not the way I pictured it. This is not the way it was supposed to happen. What is going on? And that's when we start to struggle with hope. You start to lose your hope in difficult situations. It's interesting in the story. If you read it, you know that there's a king, King Herod, who's tracking down and trying to kill Jesus. Joseph doesn't know that. Not at this point. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know what God's doing. And the interesting thing, too, is Joseph or Herod's looking for a mighty king. And the last place he's looking is a stable, which is the safest place for Jesus right now. Joseph didn't know that. Joseph also didn't know wise men were already on their way bearing gifts. It's interesting to note Jesus comes from a poor family when they went to dedicate him at the temple. They gave two turtle doves. That's what poor families gave. If you were a wealthy family, you gave a lamb for your firstborn. He was in a poor family. They had no way of escape, no way out of their circumstances. And yet these wise men come bearing gifts. And then an angel comes telling him to flee to Egypt. Now they're a refugee family. Not the way Joseph pictured it. And yet, the wise men's gifts, scholars say that's what provided the money for them to go. God was in the midst of all the messiness and the confusion. It makes me think of another story that I want to dive into. John 4, 1-42. And we read about the woman at the well. And I want to give you a little background on her, about this woman. Because she also is someone who is in a circumstance that seems hopeless. She's lost her hope. And let me explain to you why. It's quiet outside. That's the scene we find her in. She's heading out at noon in the heat of the day to fetch some water. It's not a good time of the day to fetch water. Nobody goes out at noon in the heat of the day. Why is she going out to fetch water in the heat of the day? She could have chosen a cooler time but that would have meant facing the other women, the other people. You see, this woman is the town's local bad girl. She's not married to the man she's currently living with. She's already had five husbands. Five times she's tried to start over. Five times she's tried to build a new life, and now she's given up on marriage, given up on happiness, given up on hope. 
She doesn't think she'll ever fit in, so she now lives a life of avoidance from everyone. For her, there is no turning back, no new start, no new beginning. She's accepted her lot as an outcast. She's learned to live without hope. It's tragic to admit, but this woman is not alone in reaching this point of hopelessness. The Bible speaks differently, though, in circumstances like this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Well, Jesus is about to enter the picture. Hope has come. As she nears the well, the woman notices a man sitting on the wall. She hesitates. What's he doing here? She wants to run away, but she needs water. With downcast eyes, I can imagine her trying to avoid him as she goes to the well. Maybe he'll ignore her. He doesn't. He speaks and asks her for some water. Jesus should not have spoken to her. There are a couple reasons why he should not have spoken to her. One, she was a woman. And in that custom, a man did not speak with a woman, particularly if her husband or father were not present. He should not have spoken to her. Two, she was a Samaritan and he was a Jew. They did not speak. They were enemies. Three, she was living in sin. Nobody would speak with her anymore, not even the other women in town. Jesus should not have spoken with her. But he did. And then Jesus offers her living water. The living water which quenches a, per- quenches a person's thirst and gives eternal life. There are many Old Testament passages that talk about Jesus as a living water. Basically, he's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm what you've been longing for. I'm what you need in your life. He goes to her. He doesn't wait. He approaches her in the midst of her hopelessness and offers her a way out. Him. He is the way out. How does she respond? She changes the subject. She starts to ask, talk about the well and her forefathers. She gets uncomfortable. But Jesus continues to offer her this living water. Eventually she accepts it. And you can see a joy enter back into her. as she sees that there is now hope again in what was a hopeless situation. She runs off to tell everyone in the town and they all come out and speak to Jesus. And the whole town has some hope enter into them. 2 Corinthians 6, 1-2 says, In the time of my favor, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. And I think that applies right here. Now, whenever I think of hope, there is someone that always comes to mind for me. And Pastor Randall mentioned this person in one of his earlier sermons, and I'm going to mention them again. So that person for me is Corey Ten Boom. So it's amazing how She writes, and most of her writings speak about hope. When the situation she came out of is one of the darkest, most horrible situations in the history of mankind. She was in the camps, the death camps, during World War II. Her family, what they'd done during World War II was they hid unwantables, so Jews, um, gypsies, uh, anyone who was opposed to the Nazis, they hid them in their, their business, at their business, so they were watchmakers. They had a secret room made that would hold up to six people. And they risked their lives throughout the war, hiding and rescuing people who had lost hope. 
But what ended up happening to them is there were spies that found them out. And they were captured and they were sent off to the very camps that they'd been saving people from. And they enter into these camps. And what they enter into is one of the darkest periods in our human history. A place of such atrocities, of such suffering, and such pain. And yet, she's the very person who I find writing about hope again and again. Because in the midst of darkness, the only thing that gets you through is hope. It's interesting to note that her one prayer, her and her sister, as they went into these camps, was, Lord, just please allow us to get our Bible in. They had a little Bible hidden. And that was their prayer. Lord, help us to get our Bible through so that we can read it while we're in there. Because they knew that was their only chance of finding hope while they're there. And if you read her story, it's amazing what happens again and again as they're into this camp and there's roll call and they're being searched and her sister comes down sick and they're excused from the line. And her sister hides the Bible at the camp or at the concentration camp, Ravensbrook. She hides it. And then she's sent on duty to clean the very building that she had hid it in. And she's able to bring it back to their barracks where they're housed with 150 other women in a building that's only designed to house 40. And then what they end up doing is they read from this book each and every night. And the people in their barracks start to gather around them every night. It becomes a a thing that they do. In the midst of this, though, there's one thing that really, really bothered Corey more than Betsy. It was that the building they were in was infested with lice. So many lice, it was ridiculous. And her one, and in the midst of it, she was praying to God, you know, can you just, of all the things I, I cannot stand, this one, I just cannot stand lice. Can you take them away? Just, you know, or move us to another building or something. That was a prayer she had while she was there. Now, through this time, they continued to do Bible studies in the evenings. And no guards ever came into their building. And they were amazed that they could continue to do this again and again. Years later, Corey Ten Boom ends up meeting with some of the guards from that camp, and she forgives them. She's a, a woman of incredible character. But in conversation with one of them, she asks him finally, why did you not come in our building? Why did you allow us to do Bible studies? He said, we had no idea what you were doing in there, but we weren't going anywhere near it. It was the most lice-infested building that on the whole camp. And Corey realizes in the midst of everything, the sum of times, the very things that we don't want in our lives, God is using for our good. And it just touched me when I heard that story. And so one of her quotes here I wanted to read to you was this. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't know, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. She knew who her engineer was. She knew where she had to go to get hope. And that was a dark tunnel. A number of years ago, researchers performed an experiment to see the effect hope has on those undergoing hardship. Now, two sets of rats were placed in separate tubs of water. The researchers left one set in the water and found that within an hour, they had all drowned. The other rats were periodically lifted out of the water, and then returned. 
So differing time periods. Sometimes maybe it was only 10 minutes apart. Another time it was maybe an hour. But they did this throughout. When that happened, the second set of rats swam for over 24 hours. Why? Not because they were given rest. It wasn't very long that they pulled them out. But because they had hope. They knew that at any point, someone could reach down, pull them out, and help them out. When that was in place, even with animals, unthinking rodents, they were able to survive and get through a situation that they shouldn't have been able to. How much greater is the effect on our lives? And I think that's what it was for Corrie ten Boom and those people with her for that small moment, that period of time in the evening. Someone rescued them, pulled them out, and they entered into God's presence, and it gave them the strength to get through. It's another little story I want to share with you. The school system in a large city had a program to help children keep up with their schoolwork during stays in the city's hospitals. One day, a teacher who was assigned to the program received a routine call asking her to visit a particular child. She took the child's name and room number and talked briefly with the child's regular class teacher. We're studying nouns and adverbs in his class now, the regular teacher said, and I'd be grateful if you could help him understand them so he doesn't fall too far behind. The hospital program teacher went to see the boy that afternoon. No one had mentioned to her that the boy had been badly burned and was in great pain. Upset at the sight of the boy, she stammered as she told him, I've been sent by your school to help you with nouns and adverbs. When she left, she felt she hadn't accomplished much. She wanted to do more for him. But the next day, a nurse asked her, What did you do to that boy? The teacher felt she must have done something wrong and began to apologize. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, 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 said the nurse. You don't know what I mean. We've been worried about that little boy. But ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back, responding to treatment. It's as though he's decided to live. Two weeks later, the boy explained he'd completely given up hope until the teacher arrived. Everything changed when he came to a simple realization. He expressed it this way. They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? We all need something to live for. We need something to focus on. We need something to cling to when things get tough. We need to remember who our engineer is, who the conductor is. The question is, who are you making your conductor? That's where you place your hope. What's driving you? Isaiah 46, 8 to 10 says something that I want to read to you, but I missed a note here. <laughs> uh, the quote, Corey ten Boom, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. So the reason she could have hope when she didn't know her future was she knew who God was. So I want to read you a couple things about who God is, and this is what she clung to. 
God never changes. We read that in Malachi 3, 6. God is consistent throughout all time. You read that in Hebrews 13, 8. God is good all the time. James 1, 17. He doesn't lie and is true to his word. Numbers 23, 19. His love is never ending. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. Though the universe will change, God never will. Psalms 102, 25 to 27. Isn't that good news? In a world of change, a world of difficulty, a world of struggle, a world of lies, God is everything we could ever hope for. So in Isaiah 46, 8 to 10, we read, Do not forget this. Keep it in mind. Remember this, you guilty ones. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. So in this verse, the Israelites are struggling with following God over the gods all around them. And so what God challenges them with, he says, I am the God that you need to put your hope and your trust in. And he tells them what, cha- what, cha- what is different about him from other gods. He's written the future. He can tell you what's coming up. Can any of their false gods do that? Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Now, when you are wanting to go and travel somewhere you haven't been before, the key to it is finding someone who has been there before. Someone who knows the way. Someone who can guide you. And so in this passage, what God is saying is, I can guide you. I can show you the way. But the next question is, where are we going? Where are you taking me? Am I going to like it? Would be my next question. I'm glad they'll get me to where I'm going, but where are we going? Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you. There are plans to give you hope and a future. That's where he's taking you. That's where he's taking you. So, I want to touch on this part. Only I can tell you the future before it happens. This is why we can trust God and put our hope in him. When we look at the Christmas story, just a handful of prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. Here are just a couple. Now, he fulfilled over 300. Uh, Pastor Randall mentioned this in one of his earlier sermons. But here are just a couple. He was born in Bethlehem, preceded by a messenger, John the Baptist, entered Jerusalem on a donkey, was portrayed by a friend, and received 30 pieces of silver, his friend did, was silent before his accusers, died in a manner the Romans used for criminals, crucifixion, and during this time they pierced his hands and his feet and his side. All of those things exactly prophesied in the Old Testament. And those are just a couple of them. Peter Stoner, in his classic book, Science Speaks, calculated the chance of any man fulfilling these prophecies, even down to the present time, to be one in, and I can't even say the number, if you can put it up there, it's got a lot of zeros, Um, 10 to the 17th power. 10 to the 17th power. Those are the odds of any man fulfilling these prophecies. And yet people think it was circumstance, it was a coincidence. So to help us visually comprehend the staggering odds of this probability, Stoner proposed that we take that many silver dollars and lay them across the state of Texas. 
In doing so, we'd find they would stack up across the state two feet deep. So about this high. But wait, there's more. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir up the entire mass of coins. Then blindfold an enthusiastic volunteer and tell him he can travel as far as he likes across Texas, but he must pick out the marked silver dollar. Those are the odds that Jesus could have fulfilled all of those prophecies accidentally. And yet some people still have a hard time trusting that God is in control. Only through divine appointment would you ever find that silver dollar. You're not going to find it on your own. Stoner then upped the ante significantly. He looked at the odds of any man fulfilling even just 48 of the 300 plus Old Testament prophecies, so the 48 most specific ones, and he said the odds got even harder. Jumped to 10 to the 157th power. God is in control. What I want to tell you here today is the scene you are in right now is not the whole story. God knows the whole story. But sometimes we end up in a scene and we don't understand it. Who here has played the game Seen It? If you've played that game before, just put your hand up so I can see. I'll have to describe the game. So, it's a game you play on DVD. And, you, and it, there's lots of different versions. So there's Seen It Seinfeld, which is one that I'm pretty good at. I watched all nine seasons back in the day. Um, there's Seen It Disney. If you like Disney movies, there's one. And the way it works is it plays a little clip out of, say you're doing the scene at Disney, it plays a little clip out of one of the Disney movies. And then it asks you some questions about it. Who is the actor in this? Or what is happening in the scene? Or even what movie is this from? And from this little clip, wee little part of the whole big thing, you have to try and piece together and answer the rest of the story. And I, thought, I feel like sometimes our lives are like that. We're in one little scene and we tend to interpret or see our life through that scene rather than realizing that there's a bigger picture that God has for us. Look at Corey Ten Boone with the lice. There was a bigger picture. There's a bigger thing happening in the midst of that story. Think of David and Goliath. We all know that story. David, the shepherd boy, defeats a giant. Now, there's different scenes in this story. So here, one of the first scenes during this you might see is David, during the battle, David charging out at a great warrior, Goliath. Little David, he's just in his teens, he's out watching the sheep, little shepherd, refused to take any armor. He's got this little slingshot, that's it. And he's charging out at this great warrior, nine feet tall, his armor weighs 125 pounds, his sword is way bigger than David. And you just, if you stop the scene right there, that is hopelessness. Nobody on that battlefield gave David any chance. Fast forward it. The next part of the story. We have David standing over Goliath. Goliath's sword in his hand. And he uses it to end Goliath's life. We often don't talk about this part of the story. Especially when I'm telling my kids the story. It's not the part I focus on. But 
I think it's an important part of the story because the very weapon that was the enemy was going to use to destroy him was used to bring his deliverance. And isn't that the way God works? Think of another story, Joseph in prison. What got him here? Well, one day he had a dream and he gave the interpretation of it. His brothers didn't like it. He told them, you are going to bow to me one day and you're all going to serve me. Now, being the oldest brother of, I have, is it 13 now? How many brothers do I have, mom? <laughs> it's 13, okay. I lose track. We add it on a fairly regular basis. Okay. So, similar situation. My youngest brother comes up to me and says, you're going to bow to me one day. I'm going to be like, what? What are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Um, so, Joseph got himself into some trouble with his brothers. They threw him in a hole. They sold him. Now, I'm never, I never did that to my brothers, but, you know, there were days when he had thoughts. Um, he was sold to Potiphar. He was falsely accused. He was thrown in jail, and he was abandoned. That is a bad scene. What got him there? God's gift of dreams and interpretation of dreams. Fast forward it to another scene. Joseph is in second in command of all Egypt. He is wealthy beyond imagination. He is, they say, the second most powerful man in the whole world. He's married with kids. He's reunited with his family and his father. That is a good scene. What got him there? God's gift of dreams to him. The very thing the enemy tried to use to bring his destruction was the very thing God used to bring his deliverance. So that's my encouragement today that God is at work. He is in control. We can trust him. He has great plans for you. And in the midst of those dark tunnels, he is the one we can trust and cling to because he is at work. 1 Peter 5.10 says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And the part of that I love is, will himself restore you. He's going to come down personally into your story like Jesus did with the woman at the well, pursuing you like he pursued her, not giving up on you, and offering you his living water. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope. How does he fill you with peace? As you trust in him. Philippians 1, 6 says this. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If God sends us on stony paths, he provides strong shoes. That's Corey Ten Boom. And the last quote I want to share from her is There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. What is your scene right now? Christmas is an amazing time of year when we get to think of the most incredible gift that ever came. Hope entered the world. And yet, at this time of the year, so many 
are struggling so much. I mean, the waiting lines at Grand River Hospital right now, I just checked last night, seven to nine hours. They're so busy. This is the time of year when people, for whatever reason, maybe it's because in the midst of hope, they see how little they have, or they look back and they, under, they see their struggles, or they see themselves in comparison to others. They realize that they don't have a hope. And there are so many that are struggling. Even in our church, there are many that are struggling, especially at this time of the year. And we need to be reminding others and helping them along that there is a hope in the midst of darkness. In this coming year, you will get to points where you will experience some darkness, where that tunnel maybe doesn't feel like it's ending. I don't want to fool you into thinking it's all going to be easy because Jesus says, pick up your cross and bear it daily. In this life, you will have troubles. But if you can remember who is driving your train, if you go to them, and you trust in him. If you remember that he's a good God, you can trust him. He has good plans for you. This is only a scene, a small scene in the bigger story. Or maybe you can remember too, Corey Ten Boone, that in the midst of it, he's working out amazing things. Think of Joseph, that in the midst of it, God was at work for his good. Maybe that will give you a little hope in this coming year. So what I want to do is I start to close is I have, and I apologize, cameraman, you're desperately trying to follow me right now. Um, I have a rope here. And what I want you to imagine is, just imagine this rope goes on and on and on, and there is no end to it. You can't see the end of it. Okay, maybe it wraps around the earth a couple times. Whatever it is, it goes on and on and on. And then this little part right here, if you can see it, it's black. I have to hold it beside myself. My wife warned me I have a black shirt. That's not going to work. But in the timeline of your life, this is the amount of time you'll spend on earth. The majority of your life will be spent in eternity and is based on whatever decisions you make during this small little part of your life. Okay. Now, so often we focus everything on here, don't we? So often we hear about people and they're, they're saving up money so that on this one little spot right here they can have some retirement, right? And they can enjoy life right here, this little spot right here. Okay? Or we focus it on things that only exist in this part right here. Maybe money. Maybe people, maybe success, maybe things to get us through. Whatever it is that you are focusing on, hope comes when we are focusing on and realizing that this is the part of your life that really matters. When you are focused on eternity with Christ and what he's going to bring you, it helps you travel through the difficulties in this part right here. It's like Peter in the storm. Everything was going wrong. The waves were crashing around. The wind was gusting. And in the midst of all that, 
He was the one disciple who was willing to step out into that because he had his eyes on Jesus. He wasn't looking at this part right here. He was looking beyond it to the one who is eternal and is good always. And when you can do that, that is when you're going to find hope. Hope for the future. Your hope cannot be found in things, people, or anything you would be able to get here on earth. There's only one place where robbers won't get in and steal and destroy what you have, and that is heaven. So that is our hope for the future. <clears throat> Hebrews 12.1 says, Wherefore, seeing we are also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, the author and finisher. Are you trying to write your own story today? Have you been trying to solve your own problems? Are you trying to find someone else to write the rest of the story? Maybe you think someone else has a better plan. Well, I can tell you right here, Jesus is the author. And unless you have him writing your story, it's not going to end the way it should. Galatians, so Jeremiah 29, 11, I'm going to read that again. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now that verse was written for the Israelites to the Abraham's family. It wasn't written directly for you. However, Galatians 3.14 says, He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That very promise does apply to you, because we are Abraham's children. So God's plans for you prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Who has been driving your train? Who do you want to drive your train? The worship team can come up. For you to have hope in the future, you need to put your hope in the right person. No material thing can give you hope. No person will ever be able to answer all your problems. People will let you down. God never will. God has been putting on my heart that some of you have been putting your hope in the wrong things. And I know I have at times. We try and solve our own problems, don't we? And in the midst of it, we forget that the first person we should be going to is Jesus. One thing my father did, has done that I will never forget that has stuck with me, is whenever we had a family problem, whenever anything was going on, his first response would always be, well, let's pray. Let's pray. Let's go to the author. Let's go to the train driver. And so maybe that's what God's wanting you to do today. Before you enter into the new year, maybe you need to go to him first. Ask him what he has in store for this year. And in the midst of whatever you're going through, think of him as your anchor in the storm. 
So today, what I would urge you to do is, if God's been putting something on your heart or he's been like kind of tugging at you, you know, that, that still small voice or you just, maybe there's something earlier this week you were talking to someone and it came back to mind. And that's God speaking to you and he's speaking to all of you. And I would urge you, don't leave here before you pray with someone or share that with someone because there's power in praying together and inviting God into your situation. Just like my father would do, pray about it. And so what I would urge you today is if there's something that came to mind, a situation that you felt hopeless about, invite God into that. Ask him what he's at work doing, what he wants you to do. Put him back into that position of being at the front of your train. Whatever it may be, I encourage you, don't leave here without praying with someone. We will have some people at front you, up front you can pray with. But you know what I love to see at the end of a service? I love to see some of you just turning around and praying with people with you too. Because really it's a priesthood of all believers. We can pray with each other too, right? And even during the week, you can call someone up and say, hey, can you pray with me about this? So that's what I would urge you to do today. As the worship team starts to play in the background, just think about that. Think about God putting him back into all those situations that maybe you've been struggling with. Invite him back in to be driving for you. Or maybe there's someone who's on your heart. And I know there are a couple of people God put on my heart and that I need to be doing a better job of bringing hope into their lives and praying for them because only God can restore the broken. Only God can bring hope to the hopeless.